Hello, how are you? <laughs> welcome here. Uh, I want to say a big welcome to all of our sites who are joining us. You're going to want your Bibles. We are in Colossians chapter 2, uh, but we are going to be flipping back and forth between chapter 1 and 2 as we sort of summarize the first two chapters before we dive into the very relevant and practical applicational stuff that is chapters 3 and 4. And so you're going to want your Bibles to be able to look back and forth with me. So uh, the, uh, the word con men, do you know where that came from? Okay, well, I'll tell you where it came from. So back in 1849, New York City police arrested, finally arrested a guy by the name of William Thompson. So Thompson had made his living by going up and down the streets of Manhattan, a city of about half a million at the point in time. And he was a, uh, a very outgoing, extroverted, gregarious type personality type. And he would walk up to strangers on the street and engage them in conversation. And before long, he had convinced them that they were long-lost acquaintances, that they had either gone to school together or somewhere way back there. Families knew one another and built their confidence to such a degree that he would use this line, do you have confidence in me that you could loan me your watch for just a day? Do you have confidence in me that whatever cash you've got on you, that you could just loan me for a day? And then he would disappear into the Manhattan crowd, never to be seen again. But one day, one of his hapless uh, victims saw him on the street, recognized him as the guy who had taken his watch, and there was a New York City police officer, and so they arrested him, and the confidence man that the newspapers had been looking for forever was shortened to the con man, the con man, William Thompson. So in the last hundred years, there have been a number of very famous cons and scams and rip-off artists. And we're going to put some pictures on the screen. Probably the most famous is right there in the middle, Charles Ponzi. If you talk of a Ponzi scheme, everybody knows this is over a hundred years ago. But way back when, in the early 1900s, he built his investors out of $15 million in the early 1900s. If you translate that into today's dollars, it's into the billions. Uh, basically, it was a borrowing from Peter to pay Paul type scheme. Uh, and as long as he could keep ahead of the investments, he was making truckloads of cash, and his investors were very happy with him too until it all came crashing down and he was arrested. Well, Bernie Madoff did the very same thing in our time and place and generation. Now, he went to prison and he just died just two years ago, but in his scheme, he, he got $19 billion in our generation. Now, you know that there's all different types of, of scams and schemes, and not all of them have to do with pyramid schemes and multi-level marketing and all that kind of stuff. There are other kinds of schemes. So some of you will be familiar with that name, Frank Abagnale. He became famous when Leonardo DiCaprio played the role in Catch Me If You Can. So a guy who impersonated a pilot, a doctor, a lawyer, a uh, university professor, and who today, who is still alive, is now giving lectures at $15,000 a crack on how to avoid people like himself. And of course, the greatest scam of all in Abagnale's story is that after the movie came out, it was revealed that most of his life story was actually all made up. He didn't actually impersonate all those people. It was just made up. Or Bella Gibson, you may know that name. This is a recent one. Very famous Australian who conquered a cancerous brain tumor with a gluten-free, dairy-free diet. And she became an overnight success. Her book, The Whole Pantry, and her online app was Apple's best food and drink app in 2013. She netted over a million dollars that year off that app. She was named the most inspiring woman in the world by the Irish Times until it was revealed that she actually never had cancer at all. 
and even the Christian world is not immune. Now, some of you will recognize that one picture there on the bottom right. Any of you under 30 have not a clue who that couple is. But Jim and Tammy Baker were very famous back in the 80s. They built a multi-million dollar Christian theme park that rivaled Disney. It was the third highest attended theme park in the United States, only behind Disney World, Disneyland, and then Heritage USA. And it all came crashing down when it finally was revealed they had oversold and overpromised and they had ripped off so many of their followers. No one likes being taken advantage of. Now, the truth is, as tragic as all those particular stories are, at the end of the day, those particular stories are only about money. Far more deadly is the danger of spiritual fraud or spiritual deception. To fall prey to false teaching or false doctrine. To get sucked into a cult, if you will. So you fall prey to a Ponzi scheme. You get pulled into some multi-level marketing game. You get sucked in by a deal too good to be true. Well, at the end of the day, you might be embarrassed. You might feel a little bit ashamed, but it's only money and you will survive. But if you fall prey to false teaching, your eternal destiny can be at stake. And it is why the New Testament warns over and over and over again, literally dozens of times, keep your eye out for false teaching. Acts 20, the elders at Ephesus We're given this command by Paul, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves. Look at that phrase. Will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The entire book of Jude is a warning The book is written and he says, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary instead to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Uh, So many apologists will use Jude as the foundation for their ministry that we are contending for the veracity of the Christian faith. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God. Timothy was warned as a young pastor, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. By doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I like how the NIV translation puts it, watch your life and doctrine closely. Watch your life, Timothy, live a good godly life and also watch your doctrine. And so we're in week five, we're halfway through a summer studies in the book of Colossians and we are finishing out chapter two. It's really part two of last weekend's message, the entire chapter two, we'll read the second half, but we're gonna look at the full chapter. That's why I encourage you to have your Bibles because we're gonna be flipping back and forth. But the overarching theme of this chapter has to be beware of spiritual deception. Or you could ask it in a question form, how do you avoid being spiritually deceived? And the answer, of course, which we already looked at last weekend in chapter two is abide in Christ. Get your roots down deep in Christ. Be rooted, established, built up. Walk with him. Or the phrase that we used again and again last weekend, everything we need, we have in Christ, in Christ alone. That if we anchor ourselves there, everything we need. So Peter will say in his letter, everything we need for life and godliness, we have through our knowledge of him. So everything we need, we have in Christ and in Christ alone. 
So last week, Paul's challenge in chapter two, verse six, that's where we were last weekend, to walk and abide and remain in Christ, was the first command in this book, the first imperative. The first chapter is all teaching, it's all indicatives, and you get to the first command, walk in him. And Paul has just finished recounting his personal concern, the struggle that he has for these people as he's remembering them, and his overarching purpose in in writing this book is basically, I want you to persevere in your faith. Ever since I heard the news about this new baby church that's been planted over in the Lycus Valley, uh, there's a house church in Laodicea, there's a house church in Colossae, I've heard about you, I have not stopped praying, I'm rejoicing in what God has done in you, he's brought you to faith, he's brought the gospel to you, you believed, you responded, and I'm anticipating what he is going to do, but I've not stopped praying for you, I struggle for you. I want you to know and I want you to understand the riches the fullness that you have in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who rescued us from Satan's domain. He is Lord over creation, over kings and kingdoms and over the spiritual rulers. He's head over the church and he is Lord over death and the grave. This is the ruler. And so last week we talked about all the riches that we have in Christ. So Colossians 1.19, in that great hymn describing Christ, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then chapter two, verse nine, repeats it almost verbatim. For in him, in Christ, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells. And so that phrase, he is very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed puts it, that he is truly God. All of God's fullness rests in him. Yes, he was fully man, he was a human, and he was fully God. And then in chapter two, verse 10, and it says this, and you have been filled in him. That is significant. So 119 and 29, you're like, yes, in Jesus, all the fullness of the Godhead rests. He's very God of very God. And then the next phrase is amazing. And you, his followers, have been filled in him. Everything Christ accomplished has been accomplished on our behalf, on your behalf. You've been united with him. Now, those of you who were here last weekend will remember then Paul piles five metaphors on top of one another to remind us of the things. You were circumcised with him. The old life of the flesh has been cut away. You were baptized into his death with him. You were raised in his resurrection with him. All the debts that were hanging over your head have been paid in full at the cross, and you have marched in a triumphant parade with him triumphing over all the rules and rulers and powers of the demonic realm. All of those things are yours in Christ. And then we get up to our text for today, chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore... Therefore, uh, building on everything that's gone before, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch." referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, we're going to look at this chapter, the whole chapter, 
in five ways. We're going to look at a fourfold warning, very briefly, a three-part error, a two-part admonition, the single focus solution, and then at the end, we're going to ask, and why does any of this matter anyway? So first, the fourfold warning. Now, we've read it. We read part of it last week. We read the rest of it this week in chapter 2, verse 4, 8, 16, and 18. And so the verses go like this. Chapter 2, verse 4, I say this that no one may delude you. Chapter 2, verse 8, see that no one takes you captive. Chapter 2, 16, let no one pass judgment on you. 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you. You see it there. Boom, 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 boom. Four warnings, the same context, but he just keeps coming back to this warning, 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 warning. I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be taken captive by, by hollow and deceptive philosophy, he said last weekend. You can't allow yourself to fall under the judgmental eye of some legalist who's looking over your shoulder, and nor should you fear someone coming up and saying, you know what, you don't quite qualify because you've not had the the super spiritual experience that we've had. You need an angelic vision. You need a new revelation. You need a prophetic word. You're, You're missing out on something. You need this new experience. And you see, the Bible makes it incredibly clear that we live in a continuous battle zone over our lives. Four probably major areas and probably many more. There is the full-on frontal attack of the atheistic or the humanistic worldview. And although it's a tiny slice of the world's population, they get a large part of the press. Nietzsche's cry, God is dead and we have killed him. That you religious people are stupid, you're, you're weak-minded, an educated, intelligent, enlightened person has walked away from religion, knowing that no God exists, and so we live in this battle. But we also live in the multiple-choice religious world battle that says, aren't all the religions the same? Isn't Christianity just the same as all the others? It's, it's like the blind men trying to describe the elephant, One has a hold of the tail, one has a hold of the ear, one has a hold of the trunk, one has his arms wrapped around the leg, and they're all describing their version of what God is, but they're all blind, and so they only see a part, and so every religion is just the same as every other religion. All roads lead to the the top of the same hill. You Christians should stop talking about Jesus being the only way. And then, of course, there's the never-ending spiritual battle for our minds. We'll come back to that. We're told we don't battle against flesh and blood, but about principalities and powers, spiritual powers in the heavenly realms. But perhaps the most slippery of all of these battles is when voices arise from within the church itself. When voices who purport to be Christian voices, religious voices, teachers who pull us aside, And so Paul has pointed out a three-part error. We looked at it last weekend in chapter 2, verse 8 already. What do these empty, hollow, and vain human philosophies have in common? He says they're according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits. And they're not according to Christ. They are not. They are based on human traditions and rules and regulations. They are based in elemental spirits of the world. Now, we're going to come back to that phrase. I think that phrase refers to the demonic realm, if you look at how that phrase is used in other places. But not based, not anchored in Christ. So we're going to drill in. I, 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 want, I want to dig in here, and we'll get to some application, but you need to see the comparison between chapter 2, verse 8, last week, and then what we have read this week. These three errors from last week are mirrored in the text that we read today. So chapter 2, verse 8, based on human Tradition. When you get down to verse 16, uh, the questions about diet and days. 
what you eat and drink, and then are you keeping the new moons and the Sabbath and all the festivals? It's obviously a reference back to the, the Old Testament law and the, the ceremonial diet, the ceremonial rules, the special days that they kept, and they're man-made traditions. They have gotten in, embedded in the psyche that if you don't follow all of these special days and the special diets, you are not really in. Don't taste, don't handle, don't touch. Uh, in our day and age, we might, we might hear it uh, said something like, you can't be saved unless, or you can't stay saved unless, sometimes it goes. I have a friend who pastors in Ontario, and he said when he first took over pastoring that church some 15 years ago, he was, he was happy to hear that it was a church that believed in God's grace, and they would say, yes, saved by grace, saved by grace, saved by grace. But when he got there, he realized the former pastor had taught them a mantra. They would literally say this back to him as a congregation, saved by grace, but kept by works. The first time he heard them saying that, he's like, oh, my doctor, what are we on about? Saved by grace, but kept by works. No, we are kept by grace as well. The grace of God and God alone. You can't be saved. You're, you might not stay saved, the legalist would say. When you compare chapter 2, verse 8 and chapter 2, verse 18, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and you get down to verse 18, and he talks about the worship of angels and visions. They go on and on about dreams and visions they've had, special revelation. They're puffed up with special knowledge. More than likely a precursor to Gnosticism, which isn't fully developed yet, but by the end of the first century and certainly into the second century, Gnosticism, this idea that there was a higher knowledge, there was a secret knowledge, there was a, a mysticism that you had to be part of, and if you didn't have that secret knowledge, that Gnostic knowledge, then you were not yet meeting the mark. And then finally, 2 verse 8 and 2 verse 19, not according to Christ. And it's repeated, just a mirror image, not holding fast to the head who is Christ. And so in every generation, what's interesting to me is there's nothing new under the sun, right? In our generation and in Paul's generation, you have these three errors that are alive and well, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. That if you want to be a good Christian, you must, or you must not, or you need to do something. A couple of illustrations from my early ministry years. So Carolyn and I as newlyweds, first associate pastor role, we jumped into a church back in Ontario. And we got into a church that I, I didn't know much about, but we got there and we realized it was a King James only Bible church. And not incredibly rigid about it. It's just that they preached and teached from, uh, preached and teach, they taught from, my English is good from the King James Bible. But it was back in the day when, uh, you know, we were, we were really godly. We had Sunday evening services for everybody, right? And the senior pastor gave me the Sunday evening service for the fall, and we were in First Peter. And so I began to preach from the Bible that I had at that point in time was a New American Standard Bible. And there was a senior couple that wrote a letter shortly after I started preaching that series saying, dear pastor, to the senior pastor, we're headed to Florida as we do every year. We'll be gone for three months. And when we get home, if the associate pastor is not preaching from the King James Bible, we will have to find another church. Interesting. Now, I won't tell you how it was finished. That church also had a very interesting policy. I had never seen it in my life, but we bumped into it. It was a church that in order to be a member of the church, you had to sign on the covenant that you would not drink a drop of alcohol. You had to be a teetotaler. So now you've heard a lot of Christian people talk about the wisdom of not being drunk and not drinking too much alcohol, but to make it a a a, a, a reason for being a member. And then the tentacles of that began to spread. And so there was a question, the choir. Do you have to be a member of the church to sing in the church choir? 
Because you don't want anybody just running up on stage and singing in the choir like uh, somebody could come in off the street. They could be a raw pagan. They could be living some life that wasn't honoring the Lord. We can't let anybody in the choir. Let's allow only members to be in the choir. But people have been in the choir for years who were non-members. And the reason they were non-members is because they were honest. You see, there were some people who would sign that covenant and still secretly have their beer on their camping trips and their wine at their meals, and they just lied and signed the covenant. But there were honest people who would say, I don't understand it, I don't think it's biblical, but because we enjoy a glass of wine with our meal, I guess we can't be members of the church. And now we're saying to them, not only can't you be a member of the church, but you can't even sing in the choir because you're honest in telling us that you had a glass of wine with your meal. Legalism, mysticism, asceticism alive and well in every generation. So James Dunn is a commentator, and he calls this boundary marker spirituality. That we put up boundaries or markers to, uh, to decide who's in and who's out. And they typically are external things that we can see, because we can't see what's going on in a person's heart. So we got to put up some rules that we can see on the outside, and typically they have to do with special days and with food and drink and, and the things that we can see people doing, the keeping of dietary restrictions, etc. But the greater matters of the heart can be ignored, and you will know this, that Jesus' harshest words were reserved for the Pharisees, who were legalists. In Matthew 23, he says, "'Woe to you, to the Pharisees.'" Woe to you who clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I mean, Jesus just railed at the Pharisees. He's like, you are squeaky clean on the surface. You're doing everything right. You're following all the rules, but I know your heart is not in it. And so legalism is concerned with externals that can be measured and judged. John Ordberg, pastor down in California, he shares the story of his church of a childhood, which he describes as a very legalistic church. And he says, you know, in the church of my childhood, if it was found out that the pastor was smoking cigarettes secretly on the side, or if somehow the pastor let a swear word drop in public and he was heard, he would have likely lost his job over those issues. But that very same pastor could be filled with pride self-righteousness, and a spiritually condescending attitude, and we would have looked at him as a well-respected and even an admired leader. Are you with me? You've seen it? You've experienced, maybe? The legalist adds rules without reasons and seeks to control other people's behaviors. The ascetic is the opposite side of the same coin. So if the legalist adds to grace and says there's certain things that you must do, the ascetic insists on taking things away. Self-denial, rejecting God's good gifts of food and drink and, and often marriage, you should stay celibate. Somehow thinking that to embrace or reject rather various kinds of pleasure will garner God's favor. And then the ascetic, this is a very interesting tie, can be very close cousin to the mystic. Because often asceticism, denial, beating one's body, denying certain diet is to lead you into a spiritual experience. Maybe work yourself up into a trance. There are certain spiritual experiences that you need to aspire to. 
some higher knowledge that you need, some encounter with God that you're missing out on. You need a second work of grace, uh, maybe even a third and a fourth work of grace. You need these new words, some additional knowledge, some new revelation. And Paul is reminding us, as I've said before, everything we need, we have in Christ and Christ alone. And Paul is pointing the question and asks the question, why are you chasing shadows? When the living Christ is right in front of you, it's not that these things are wrong in and of themselves. In fact, they're shadows of something very good. Uh, The life of Christ shines down over the Old Testament like this long shadow that points us forward to Christ. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 16, Every ruler and power and authority was created by him and for him. Why is it critical to talk about that? Because I think that in adding anything to the work of Christ, we run the danger that all of these have a demonic root to them. So in chapter 1, verse 16, he said, every ruler and power and authority was created by him. And it refers obviously to kings and kingdoms, visible kings and kingdoms. But he also refers to the invisible and the invisible spiritual forces, rulers, and authorities. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, he's head over all rule and authority. 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Very same phrase. And 2, verse 20, you have died to the power of the elemental spirits. And that phrase commentators struggle with interpreting. It's only used six times in the New Testament. But I think in this context, it's very clear that he is connecting it to the spiritual forces of evil because of the context. Ephesians 6 tells us this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a spiritual battle. In Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. Yes, the battle is real, but we don't fight with physical uh, instruments. Ephesians 3, love this text. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That context is an amazing context, but it's because what it's saying is as the church is gathered... It's talking about a heavenly news report goes out into the demonic realm, into the spiritual realm. The angels and the demons know when the people of God are gathered and a news report goes out into that realm. But if you allow yourself to live under the burden of legalism and asceticism, if you spend your life in an endless pursuit of the next spiritual or mystical high, inevitably you open yourself up to the influence of the elemental spirits of the world, which would say to us, the finished work of Christ is not enough. Jesus is a good starting point, but there has to be something more. And so then Paul gives his admonition, two part, two sides to the very same question in chapter two, verse 20. And he basically asks this question, did you die or not? Did you die or not? Have you received Christ? We talked about that last weekend. Have you been united with him? Has the old way been cut off? Were you baptized with him? Were you raised with him? Were your debts paid? Did he triumph over the enemy? Has the fullness of Christ been transferred to you or not? And if it has been, then why are you living as though you are still alive? This is a a very thought-provoking text. Like you are in charge. Remember what Paul is saying, you're dead. 
Now, Galatians 2.20 says the exact same thing. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself more me. You think that through, and it is like I no longer live. I have no rights. I don't even exist anymore. I'm dead. I was crucified with Christ. And what you see now, the life that I live in the flesh, is actually Jesus Christ living his life through me. So 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And herein lies the challenge. The challenge of the spirit-filled life. That the old man keeps climbing back up on the altar and taking control of our life. Anybody had that experience? No honest people in the room. Hmm. So you might have heard the illustration that there's only three ways for us to live our lives. As a natural person, a spiritual person, and a carnal person. If you've been in the church any length of years, you have likely heard this. It's based on a little chunk of scripture at the end of 1 Corinthians 2 and spilling into 1 Corinthians 3. So there in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to them. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We can't see and hear and understand spiritual things. They make no sense to us, the natural person. But the spiritual person, it goes on to say, understands all these things. The Spirit of God has enlightened us. And then what is the carnal person? Well, the carnal person, he goes on into chapter 3, but I couldn't address you as spiritual, but as people of the flesh. So that word carne in Spanish refers to meat, incarnation, taking on flesh. You're a carnal person. You're living fleshy. What is a carnal person? A, A carnal person is a spiritual person who is living like a natural person. And they're miserable all the time. They're miserable at church because they know how they're living their life, and they're miserable out there in the world because they they know that they should know better. Uh, So years ago, a guy named Bill Bright drew three pictures to illustrate the difference between these lives. Some of you will have seen these before. The natural man is self on the throne of the life. That's how we are born. The circle is our life, and all those dots in there are all the things that we're involved in, and self is on the throne, and Christ is the cross outside of our life. Great. The spiritual man is the one who has put Christ on the throne. Christ is the ruler, the king of my life. Self is obviously still there in the life, but the Lord is ordering our life, and the carnal man is the one who self gets back up on the throne. So Christ is in our life. He is our savior, perhaps, but he is not the Lord. I continue to get back on the throne of my life, and I think that this is what Paul is getting at here in Colossians 2 when he asks them the question, did you die or did you not die? Like, are you dead? Did you die? Did you die with Christ or not? Then why do you keep crawling back up on the throne of your life? And so the single focus solution is this. Christ must be all and all. 2 verse 6, you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, now walk in him. 2 verse 9 and 10, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, and it also dwells in you. Everything Christ did, he did it for you. You were cut off with him. You were buried with him. You were raised with him. Your debts have been paid. You walked in that triumphant parade. Now, somebody might say, so what? So what? Why does this matter so much? Why is Paul so concerned? Why does he say at the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, I struggle for you. I wrestle for you is the term that he uses. Why is Paul so deeply concerned that these people get it? 
And it is this, that if this understanding of who we are in Christ is key to our victory and joy. And here's where it gets incredibly relevant because next weekend we turn the page and we get into chapter three and four. And chapter three and four become incredibly relevant. But we will not be able to live out chapter three and four unless we have the foundation of chapter one and two. If we try to live chapter three and four lives, we will utterly fail unless we are anchored. Because when you get into chapter three and four, so this book has 29 verbs and we've only covered five of them in the first two chapters. That means in chapter three and four, there are 24 verbs. It's like all these commands given to us in the second half of this book. How are we gonna possibly live them out unless through Christ, he lives his life through us? If we do not die, if we do not get out of the way and let him live his life through us, we will go from victory to defeat, from joy to sorrow, from good days to bad days, but never ever being able to maintain the walk we so desire. Let me just run through a few of them for you to just discourage you a little bit. Here's what you have to do, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Put away wrath, anger, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Bear with each other. Forgive one another like the Lord forgive you. And above all else, love one another. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another. Sing to one another in spiritual hymns. Some of you can't even sing at all. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in a way that would honor the Lord. Husbands and wives, you want to have a great marriage? Parents and kids, you want order and harmony in your home? Workers and bosses, you want a workaday world to flourish? Here's the list. That's the next three, two chapters, three and four. And the problem with all of these commands All of these imperatives is the tendency of the human heart to lean to legalism. And we love a list. Do we not love a list? Just give me the list. Give me the check boxes. Check, 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 done. Until we look at that face that stares back at us in the mirror and we admit that it is utterly impossible. Can't do it. Can't keep up with it. 25 stinking verbs. So C.S. Lewis is famous for his saying, Christ did not come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. Does he make bad men better? Of course, the Spirit of God does that. But that is not God's primary work. He is calling us from death to life. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he goes on to say this, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Unless we lay down our arms, unless we come to him and die, unless we take up the life that Christ has given us and he lives his life now through us, we will never have the victory we want. So Lewis goes on, and I want to read a longer chunk from this, but he goes on to say, we're just living our ordinary human lives, our ordinary selves, our ordinary desires and interests. And then we start to think about the life that we have. We feel somehow compelled to live this kind of life, the ought to, things should be different. And we call it things like morality or decency or simply the good of the society. And we start to define being good as living those things out and doing everything that we ought to do. And then he goes, we discover that there's some things we want to do that are actually wrong 
And so we have to give those up. And then we discover some things that we really don't want to do that are actually right. And so we better learn to add those things to our life. And so you start to work really hard, trying to be a good person and doing what we ought to do. And then you realize it can't be done humanly. When we're doing well, we fall prey to spiritual pride and self-satisfied smugness. Look how good I'm doing. And when we fail, we're unhappy, discouraged. We're devastated. Like Paul crying out, oh, wretched man that I am. So Lewis goes on to say this, for make no mistake, if you're really going to try to meet all the demands made on the natural self, you will never have enough of you to meet those demands. And then he says this, the Christian way is different, hard, and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. I love that line. I didn't come to torment you, I came to kill you. No half measures are any good. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I'll give you myself. My own will shall become your will. And then Lewis goes on to talk about the struggle to please God in our natural selves. What Paul would talk about according to human wisdom and tradition, legalism, mysticism, asceticism, that until we get all this human stuff out of the way, we will never succeed. And then he concludes this way, that is why the real problem of the Christian life comes where people do not usually look for it. It comes the very moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals, and the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back in listening to the other voice, taking the other point of view, letting that larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in, and so on all day. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So G.K. Chesterton, an evangelical Catholic who had an incredible sense of humor, he wrote murder mysteries and a lot of cool stuff, and he had a lot of fun sayings. Chesterton would say, I go to bed every night a Christian, and somehow I wake up a pagan. Every night I'm a believer when I go to sleep, and I wake up a pagan. And anew and afresh, every morning again, I've got to remind myself, the old is gone, the new is come. What Christ did, he did on my behalf. His life is my life. Your life is hidden in his. What he did, he did for you. The old life is cut away. It is buried in baptism. It is raised in the resurrection. The debts have been paid. The enemy has been triumphed over. Why does Paul make such a big deal over this? Why did we take two weeks to dig into the depths of this text? Why can he not stop praying for these people? Why does he wrestle and struggle over them? Why is he so concerned that they get their roots down deeply in their truths? Two reasons. Because he knows that in every generation, false teaching arises. And unless we are deeply, deeply, deeply rooted in the word of God, we will fall prey to false teaching. And secondly, he also knows that it is the only way that we will walk in victory. It's only when we get out of the way and let Jesus live his life through us 
And if we get this, we get the keys to freedom. We get the keys to power and joy and strength in the Holy Spirit. If we understand, if we really understand what Jesus Christ accomplished and that he did it in our place, then all the resources that are his are actually ours. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him, verse two, and he has filled you. Amazing, amen? Everything we need, we have in Christ and Christ alone. His life is our life. His victory is our victory. His death, burial, and resurrection is our death, burial, and resurrection. His power over sin and Satan is our power. His righteous life is our righteous life. So we've been singing a song in the last few months around this place, a song called Yet Not I But Christ. And the chorus goes like this. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. That's what Paul is saying in Colossians 2. Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing all is mine. Everything Christ did, everything credited to him by the Father is now credited to me. All is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. In the morning when I rise... In the morning when I rise, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. Give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all the world, just give me Jesus. Stand with me, we'll pray, be on our way. Lord, I pray somehow by your spirit that you would bring this text alive to us. Paul was so passionate when he said, I can't stop praying for you folk. I want you to know the struggle that I have for you, the wrestle that I have for you, that you would understand the riches that are yours in Jesus Christ, that you would understand to the very core of your being that everything that Christ did, he did on your behalf and he did in your place and the fullness of the Godhead that dwells in him is now being poured over into your life. You just gotta die and get out of the way. Let him live his life through you. And Father, I know why Paul wrestled because every single one of us, when we come to that point in time where we finally get rid of ourselves and lay it down, get up on the altar and then have that experience of the spirit filling us and you, Jesus, living your life out through us, what joy, what victory, what power we experience in Christ. Lord, may that be true for each one of us. I pray for the men and women in this room who maybe have not understood everything that is theirs in Christ, that they would know in Christ and in Christ alone their strength is found. None of themselves, all of in Christ. Pour that into us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.